0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. We are going to do the second half of chapter 14 today, a Mormon Christology, and this is the last chapter in the book. I thought last time it was going to be the last podcast covering the book directly, but as we found out, getting through the distinctive Mormon doctrines about the Godhead and Christ and things like that need to be parsed out, and so we did that pretty thoroughly, and I think we're ready to move forward now. The first section here is called God's Necessary Existence. And it starts out with this. It says, Doctrine and Covenant, section 93, seems to contemplate that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as individuals each have de re ontologically necessary existence. First, just define de re ontologically, that just means that they of necessity have to exist. Is that what that means?
1: De re means is a kind of necessity of the thing itself, not merely of the proposition. So you have a distinction between de re necessity and de dicto necessity. This was a distinction made in medieval theology by the different ways that things could be necessary. So if it's de dicto necessary, then it's necessary because of the nature of the statements made. If it's de re necessary, I'm talking about the nature of the things at issued. Re is Latin for thing. So this is of the thing. And what we're saying is that the individual persons themselves have the kind of existence. So this is an ontological claim that they have existences as a part of their nature that it is natural for them to exist and there's no beginning to their existence as individuals and this is important to keep in mind joseph smith also said in the king Follett discourse he said god himself exists i think he says not necessarily you know god is self-existing is the term that he uses. self-existing means that it's the nature in the self at issue to exist And so God is a necessary being in the sense that it is simply the nature of the divine persons to have always existed. Existence is natural for them. There is no further question that can be asked, because once you say it's natural for them, what we're saying is that it's the same as saying the mammals have hair. It's just the nature of the thing that we're talking about, that existence is part of what we're talking about.
0: Right, and I think he said upon those same principles, man also is
1: necessarily existing precisely and so what joseph smith was asserting is the same kind of existence that the individual divine persons have the uncreated intelligences of humans also have so there's a part of us that is uncreated it's the intelligent part of us and they both exist of this kind of deray necessity in other words it's not the kind of necessity that is a logical necessity there's no argument that is given to show that it is necessary that these things exist it's just their nature to exist And that's the distinction between De Re and De Dicto Necessity. So I'm not saying it's logically necessary, because I don't believe that it is logically necessary that the divine persons exist. It's simply an assertion of fact it's their nature to exist. I guess that
0: pretty much covers the rest of the quote, but I'll read it anyway. So after it says De Re, ontologically necessary, that is that it is their nature to exist, and they individually cannot fail to exist. The Father is the source of light and truth which is communicated to the Son, through the spirit of truth god's attribute of intelligence or light of truth was not created or made neither indeed can be and that's a quote from the doctrine covenants 93 so by strict implication it follows that the divine persons must themselves have ontologically necessary existence and then to jump forward a little bit here the next concept in this section i wanted to cover is starting out with this quote it says because the divine persons are perfectly rational beings." which we talked about earlier, that's why we're not really justifying that claim here, but let's just say that they are. It follows that they will always freely choose to relate to one another and sustain the loving relationship in existence. It would be irrational to reject the greatest good possible, which consists of the loving relationship of indwelling intimacy among the divine persons. Therefore, it is certain that they will freely choose to love one another as one God. It is logically possible that the Godhead may fail to exist if the divine persons freely choose to cease loving one another, but it is not practically possible.
1: So what we're talking about is the divine persons exist of a different kind of necessity than the Godhead. The Godhead emerges from the relationship of the divine persons as a loving and dwelling unity. And so the Godhead's existence is dependent on the free choices of the individual divine persons because to be in relationship is a free choice in a libertarian sense. And so the Godhead exists contingently, and what is contingent upon is the free decision of the divine persons. The divine persons could not choose to not exist as individuals. They can choose, however, not to be in a relationship, nevertheless, to the extent it's not rational for them to make that decision. I mean, we're talking about the most intelligent beings in the universe, and we can trust them to always act intelligently. And the most intelligent decision possible would be to exist in a loving relationship of the divine kind. And it would be irrationality of the stupidest sort possible to reject that kind of relationship because it is our nature that when when we are in this kind of relationship of divine unity, we experience the greatest joy and happiness possible. And it's a very simple formula. If it is a choice to be happy, It follows that it is sheer stupidity to not choose to be happy. So if you have the choice between happiness and sadness and you choose sadness, you're an idiot. That's kind of the assertion that I'm making here.
0: All right. I guess one caveat would be obviously, as we discussed before, that God can feel sadness in relation to others, namely human beings and things like that. But you're saying in relation to one another, they would want to always choose to love one or to be in that ever-loving relationship.
1: Well, let me give you an analogy. Let's say that we have a husband and a wife who just revel to be in relationship with each other. They love each other completely and they're mature in their humanity. So that they find great joy in being in this relationship. But let's say they have a child who has rejected everything they stand for rejects that relationship with them and of course they feel sadness in relationship to the child who rejects them that doesn't mean that the happiness that they enjoy in their own relationship is destroyed it simply means that there's a sadness also because of the decisions of others that are not in that relationship
0: all right now that makes sense all right as we kind of talked about last time i'll just brush over that again because it comes up again here you describe the nature of the godhead or the way to think about it as something you call the emergent trinity which just means much like the molecules of water individually they are different but together they create an entirely new substance or thing with a different nature that it would not be separately and so with that view i'll read this quote here it says god as a community of divine persons is the greatest conceivable love Their united love gives rise to an incommensurable joy. Further, this loving relationship has been extended to mere mortals. This love gives rise to life and glory on a new level of supreme existence, which proceeds from God's presence to fill the immensity of space as light from the sun fills the solar system. And that's you'll recognize that's from Doctrine and Covenants 88. And this light which proceeds from the one God's presence is the source of all biological life and of the natural laws which govern all things, again from DNC c 88. Thus there can be no rivals to the one God, because in this sense God comprehends all reality within the scope of his governing power, knowledge, and love. And there's more to this, but I just wanted to ask, from what premise are you drawing the conclusion that there can be no rivals to the one God, or like, why, why did you choose to state that there? I just didn't see how that fit.
1: We discussed this last time. It's an argument against the possibility of more than one divine being with omnipotent power. So if you have two omnipotent beings, it seems that they both could accomplish anything that they desire. But if one desired to frustrate the intentions and acts of the other, then it seems we would have two omnipotent beings. And neither could be omnipotent because the one that desires to stop the other being from accomplishing his purposes by definition couldn't do so. And the one who wishes to carry out his wishes, by definition, couldn't do so because he's being stopped by an omnipotent being. It's an argument to reduce to absurdity the notion that there could be two omnipotent beings. But here what I'm saying is that there can't really be any rivals because the power of the Godhead, its glory and its governing status, arises from the relationship of being in loving unity. So either they agree with each other and therefore exercise power in unison. Or if one of them disagreed with the decision of the others, then they wouldn't be in complete agreement, but the one who disagreed wouldn't be able to exercise divine power because it's not in complete unity. It follows that there can't be more than one divine omnipotent being, because omnipotence is a property of the Godhead, and it's a property that supervenes on the divine persons only to the extent they're in the relationship as divine persons in the Godhead. So the governing power of the universe resides in the Godhead as one God, three divine persons united as one God and not merely in the individual divine persons. This becomes important because we're talking about one of the divine persons leaving the Godhead to become mortal. And so what I'm doing also is, is setting up the discussion to follow that we have the possibility of a divine being choosing not to be fully omnipotent by leaving the unity of the Godhead. It's both a response to an argument that there can't possibly be more than one omnipotent divine being. I agree, but there could be a unison of of many individuals who constitute one divine being, that is, one Godhead. And it also sets up the possibility that one of the divine persons could choose to leave the Godhead and could do so in unison and agreement with the others if they had an overriding reason. For one of them to leave the unity of the Godhead, for instance, to become mortal and leave behind the fullness of the divine glory.
0: Right, makes sense. So that pretty much covers that section and leads right into the next one that I'm gonna have Jacob cover. So the next one is titled The Necessity of Condescension and Kenosis.
2: Right. And the premise of this is pretty much just what you said. But because the divine persons are rational beings, they're always going to freely choose to relate to one another and sustain the loving relationship that is the Godhead, unless There is a very compelling reason, like the Godhead could unitedly decide that one of the divine persons must become human to provide an atonement and salvation for humans. Thus, the only reason for leaving the Godhead is an overriding love for humans. And on this view, or this view of God, thus entails an implicit kenotic Christology. And so this is showing a necessity of condescension and kenosis. Is there anything else you want to add there?
1: Well, the necessity is precisely this, that there are certain things that the divine unity cannot experience. The persons in the divine unity can't have certain kinds of experiences. And so in order to continue their progression with experiential knowledge, the only way to gain the experiential knowledge that arises from being, for instance, an individual is to leave the total unity of the Godhead. But there could be another reason, and that is that in order to accomplish an atonement, in order to accomplish an incarnation where one of them fully experiences what it's like to be human, one of them at a time could voluntarily choose to leave the Godhead with the consent of the others in order to achieve the salvation of, or provide for the possibility of humans to achieve salvation and to provide an exemplar of a divine person experiencing mortality. That is a fully divine person who then leaves behind the fullness of divinity in order to experience the limitations of what it is to be human. And so what we're talking about is why would a divine person choose to become human, but not only that, there may be a necessity, and that is that one of them must atone. And the only way to atone is to participate fully in the suffering of humankind in its fullness. So if the atonement requires that kind of experiential knowledge, that kind of experiential participation, and that kind of involvement in human experience then of necessity, one of them at a time would leave the other two in the Godhead to become human. And that means that while one of them is mortal, the other two remain fully divine, governing um, power of the entire universe, where the Father, for instance, during Christ's ministry would remain fully divine, and the Father to whom he prays, and the Holy Spirit would remain to influence and be an inspirational Power by which God is manifest and it revealed, and so what we're talking about here is the essence of the Christian message. Christ had a reason to become human in order to accomplish salvation, and it arises out of the love of the divine persons for human beings to accomplish their salvation and to open the door to their exaltation. Now, in Mormon thought. I'm just. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. We engage this in Volume Two at length, but virtually everyone is saved except for. A very, very small group, it's de minimis, of sons of perdition, but everybody, well, actually, everybody is saved. After they're saved, some of them then also openly reject Christ, but virtually everyone is saved. There's a universal salvation in Mormon thought. However, not everyone is exalted. That is, everyone is saved from the consequences of death. Everyone is saved from the consequences of sin to the extent that they are made free to choose for themselves. However, not everybody achieves the fullness of divinity, which we call exaltation. But all of those doors were opened by Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Now, incarnation simply means to take upon oneself flesh. In in Latin, means to become enfleshed, okay? Mm. So Christ takes upon himself a mortal body. And what we're talking about in condescension is that he leaves behind a certain divine glory or a fullness of divine glory to experience something that is much less than being completely divine. He experiences what it's like to be fully human. So let me set this up. Jesus as a child went through what other children do. There was a time when he couldn't control his bodily functions. His mother had to change his diapers. There was a time when he cried when he was hungry. There was a time you know, did he throw temper tantrums? I don't know, but there was undoubtedly a time when he let his mother know that he needed to be sustained as a human being like all other human babies do. And so what we want to say about Jesus is that he participates in every way in mortality that we do in its fullness. There's nothing that is essential to the human experience that he felt to experience, and there's nothing essential to being human that he felt to be. He was fully human in becoming what we are. There's not a distinction between him and us in terms of his humanity. Now, that immediately requires me to address something that is left in the last chapter, and that is, what do we do with the biblical assertions that he had a divine father? That is, if we did a DNA test, would we discover really remarkable things about the paternal DNA that he had? And what I wanted to say there is very simple, and that is that regardless of whatever his heritage was, his experience as a human being was completely that of a human being. And there was nothing that he is that we are not in terms of what it means to be mortal. He was mortal. If he had an immortal father, he still had a mortal body if his father was omniscient he was still limited in knowledge if his father was omnipotent he was still limited in power and what i want to say about that is of course that those divine attributes arise from being in the unity of the godhead and he's not in the unity of the godhead he grew from grace to grace and learned what it was like to grow and be human and he grew in his relationship with his father in heaven just like we all do now you know if he were your big brother it'd be like he was the perfect child i suppose and I think there's a good deal of evidence in the New Testament that, in fact, his siblings kind of resented him. Mm-hmm. But I'm not I'm not going to go into that. I don't know that that's essential to the discussion.
2: Okay. I do want to back up for a moment on something that you mentioned. And I want to first clarify that you bring up in the book that Joseph Smith taught that the father has already experienced a mortality on another sphere and that the Holy Ghost will yet do so. And then you bring up that the reason... For the Godhead to decide for one of the divine persons to become human would more or less be to provide an atonement and salvation. So does this imply that there was another atonement that needed to be performed on, on the sphere on which God the Father resided on when he was in his mortal probation? Or how do we understand that?
1: I'm going to say that we don't have a full understanding of that. It's a question that remains to be answered by further revelation except that, Joseph Smith, and he may have had assistance, but at least Joseph Smith did a poetic rendition of section 76, in which he asserts that Christ is the Savior of all worlds, not just this world. And he already had a notion that there were more worlds than this one, and that they were all saved through Christ, and that there was only one Savior, and that's Jesus. So the fact that the father became mortal doesn't mean that their mortal experiences had to be identical. It doesn't mean that if when Jesus was five years and five days and six hours old, he was eating hummus, that the father also had to do the same thing. Their experiences can be similar, but not identical. They were similar in the the sense that they both experienced the essence of what it is to be mortal, to be limited as we are in our humanity. It doesn't mean that virtually everything that Jesus did, the father also did their mortal experiences don't have to be identical and in fact i think it would be nonsensical to believe that they were are identical in other words the father's mother and father weren't mary and joseph that Mm. kind of thing so we don't want to take the notion that the father had a mortality to the extent that it means that it's virtually identical to everything jesus did
2: okay so then you bringing up that the only reason for leaving the godhead would be an overriding love for mere humans, if God the Father did not perform an atonement on his sphere, I guess that overriding love would just be better equipping him to experientially understand what humans go through while they're mortal.
1: Right, It's not the only reason. They could choose for a number of reasons for a divine person to become mortal. One of them may be that one of them has to leave the unity of the Godhead in order to become mortal, in order to perform an atonement. But that's not the only reason. The other reason is That they grow and progress in knowledge and in power by having new experiences. And there's an eternity, an infinity of new possible experiences. There's no end to it. And in order to grow, they may choose to leave behind the unity in order to experience the kinds of experiences that are possible only for an alienated individual living in what I'll call an opaque world. That is where we can shut out from others our minds. You know, it's not that everybody knows what you're thinking in this world. We don't communicate telepathically. And so in order for us to be in a situation where we can lie, where we can feign, where we can shut others out, we have to have this possibility of opacity where our minds are not open to everyone. Divine persons can't do that when they're in the divine unity. And so there are other reasons also to become mortal. In fact, we've become mortal. We left behind a greater glory in certain respects in order to progress and learn. So we had the same reasons to become mortal as the father did. And the father is undergoing a mortality for the same reasons. It was Jesus of Nazareth who had the additional reason for becoming mortal, that it was essential for him to be able to carry out and accomplish an atonement.
2: Okay, good. I just wanted that clarified because the the way it was worded in the book, it made it sound like the only reason for leaving was the overriding love for, for humans and performing the atonement.
1: It's a good clarification. Now,
2: you go on to define a fullness of divinity so that we can continue the conversation about Christ being both mortal and divine. And you entitle it P1, saying that any being that acts upon and is acted upon by all reality immediately is fully divine.
1: Right. The only kind of being that could have this kind of omnipresence, if you will, It's an omnipresence where the divine being both acts upon and is acted upon by every reality in the universe immediately, that means without mediator, has to be a fully divine person. And so this becomes definitive of what a divine person is. Only a divine person has this property, but it also means that only a divine person has complete access to every aspect of reality. Now, if you accept process assumptions, every aspect of reality acts and is influenced by every other aspect of reality. So we both have some influence on every aspect of reality and are also partially influenced by every other aspect of reality. What we don't have is a consciousness and a knowledge of every aspect of reality because it remains well below the conscious level of understanding or grasping what's going on. God's awareness and recognition and cognitive grasp of every bit of reality would be superlative. Unlike what we experience if we participate in a process world. So I just want to point out that this kind of definition would be true of every reality to the extent that every being acts upon and is acted upon by every other reality in process thought. What is different for God is that he is able to consciously act upon every aspect of reality to bring about his purposes, whereas we are not. Our influence on other aspects of reality are unintentional and often just totally unknowing.
2: Okay. And with that definition or understanding of a fullness of divinity, we're prepared to then ask the question, are divinity and humanity compossible in Christ? or in other words, the classical question posed by the Christian view that God became a man also is confronted in a Mormon view. Is Jesus the Christ truly human and truly divine? And how can Jesus of Nazareth be identical with the Son of God if Jesus is limited in power while it is admitted that the Son of God is maximally powerful? And if Jesus is limited in knowledge and the Son of God is maximally knowing?
1: We're trading here, of course, on equivocations. The Son of God is a technical term. In this kind of a statement for the second person in the Trinity, that is a divine person who's fully divine. And we're talking about a person who was fully divine, nevertheless being identical in his personal identity to Jesus of Nazareth. How can that be? So what we're looking at is an explanation of how Jesus is an identical being with the Son of God. And when he was mortal, was he both truly human and also truly divine at the same time? While well, he was mortal, was he something less than divine while well, he was mortal? And, all, and afterward, he was divine, but not really mortal. So those are the kind of questions we're asking.
2: Okay. And then you bring up that Jesus revealed something of human nature when in John ten thirty four, he says, Ye are gods. And then if you go a little bit more into you know, being fully human and approaching divinity.
1: There's a distinction between being merely human and being fully human. Being fully human means that we have realized the potential of our humanity to its fullest. Being merely human means I have every property that is essential to be of the kind human, but I haven't really developed my human capacities. So to be fully something is much different than being merely something in this context. And so what Christ is asking us to do is to be fully human and in being fully human to therefore realize our divinity, because to be fully human is to be divine. And so the notion of theosis in Mormonism is simply one of fully maturing in our humanity. Now, it's not something that we do all alone. It's not like if I just grow up and someday I'll be God, okay? To fully mature in my humanity means that I enter into relationships with others where I not only learn from them, but I bless their lives also. And in blessing them, I undertake through this this um, program of experience as a mortal. To, I may learn, I have the capacity to learn, to perfectly love others. And to the extent that I learn to perfectly love others and to develop my human capacities, I realize my divinity. However, I'm a free being, and I may not make those choices. So it's the purpose of humanity may not be realized for everybody, And God can't force us to realize it because he can't force us to love and to learn to love. That's something that we have to do. It's a choice of the heart and can't be coerced. So God is inviting us to become fully human and therefore to participate fully in humanity. We happen to be the kinds of beings where we realize our full potential only when we are fully open to others and we are willing to love and to be loved in a fully divine way. So to develop our full humanity is something different than being merely a human being a mere human being may get up in the morning and do nothing more than a dog, you know, get up, basically take care of bodily needs, get dressed and go to work, come home and, and eat, maintain, you know, everything that's necessary for a bodily existence, plop down before the TV, watch it, and unconsciously get up, you know, go to bed and get up the next day and do it all over again. Being merely human is a very different kind of life than being fully human.
2: Okay. And you bring up a number of scriptures that show that you know, the resurrected Christ was the perfect union of being fully human and being divine. In 3 Nephi 27, 27 when he asks the Nephites, what matter of men ought ye to be? And his answer was, very, they say unto you, even as I am. And you also bring up that his perfection's not something that is impossible for us to realize. It's what we are if we are being fully human. And again, you point to 3 Nephi 12, 48, where it says, Therefore, I would that you should be perfect, even as I or your Father in heaven is perfect.
1: Yeah, and, and one of the surprising things here that almost everybody misses is the present tense of the ter- of the verb to be. It doesn't say, therefore, I would that someday you become perfect. The command isn't, I hope that someday in the far future you're able to realize this. It says, therefore, be perfect, even as I am He's speaking in present tense. So what he's saying is, to the extent we fully realize our humanity, we already are as he is. We're perfect. And so I keep pointing out this present tense. It's something I go into a bit in in my book, Fire on the Horizon, because this present tense of the verb is pregnant with meaning. But that's not the purpose of what we're talking about. I'm not going to elucidate that. That's another discussion but it is a present tense it's our humanity that he wants us to develop not some further nature that we're someday going to have it's our present humanity it's our present existence that he wants to perfect not something that someday we may be when we become different than what we are
2: so now we've distinguished between being merely human being fully human and now let's go into how divinity mixes into this because you said before there's a difference between being fully divine, and then being divine, because there's essential properties that you need to have to be divine, but you don't have to necessarily have all of the properties of being fully divine to still be divine.
1: Right. In fact, what I'm proposing is something that is, is fairly radical, because I believe that it is a part of what's radical in Mormonism, that is there aren't two natures. What we've talked about in the tradition is the two-nature theory of Christology. There's a human nature and there's a divine nature. What Mormonism asserts and what I think is the most radical claim is that there aren't two natures, there's one. There is human nature, but it's human nature when it is fully developed and matured that is divine nature. They're not two natures, they're not distinct natures, they're the same nature, it's just that one has realized the potential of what we call human nature. So to be human is already to be part of the divine species. It's entailed in the very simple statement that we're sons and daughters of God – Taken in a, in a more or less literal sense, we are the same species as the gods. And this is a really radical claim. It's also a really inspiring claim and one of the greatest assets of Mormonism, in my view.
2: And you also use the analogy of essential human properties to point to essential divine properties in that you use a human father and then a newborn child. Anyone would consider that, you know, to be human, One of the essential properties is to have a capacity for rational thought, being morally responsible, possessing free will, and being able to walk upright. However, a newborn child that's only three days old is unable to think rationally, is not morally responsible, doesn't have free will, and is unable to walk upright. Yet, this baby has the potential to become an adult human and a human father.
1: I mean, nobody's going to claim that the baby isn't human just because it hasn't fully realized human nature. And so what I'm asserting here is that what it means to have a nature it may be that the properties that are essential to that nature are properties that are subject to a relative development or growth. And so the you know if I have a divine property such as knowledge it doesn't mean that in order to be divine I have to be fully divine. I have the property of divinity. I'm a morally accountable being which is a property of divinity. I have a property of divinity which is the capacity to know Everything, but I merely have the potential for realizing that. I don't presently do that. I have the property of knowing things, but it's not fully developed yet. And so, what I'm pointing here to is a different assessment, and that is that a property that is essential to a kind could be possessed in degrees rather than fully or all at once. And so, I'm introducing here a concept of a property that is subject to growth, development, grace to grace, and that is possessed in degrees rather than simply possessed in its fullness or not at all. In the tradition, the divine properties must be possessed in their fullness. They have to be fully realized so that there is no potential left. That's what it means to be divine, is that there's no potentiality left to develop anything. God just is. There's no potential for development at all. Remember, that's Thomas Aquinas' view. And so we're redefining within the Mormon view of what it is to be human and what it is to be divine the nature of the properties at issue, because it turns out that the, uh, I feel the Thomas view, which I don't believe allows for a coherent Christology, and I believe is inconsistent with Christian claims, to say that, that, um, God has to be, I fully developed with no potentiality whatsoever. Clearly, Jesus of Nazareth, even as a divine person, was subject to growth. He learned by the things that he experienced, according to Hebrews. And so, The kinds of claims that are made by Thomism about God are very difficult to put together with the claim that you could have a human who could also be God in the same person. That's the kind of thing that I think we're solving here, and that is the introduction of the notion of a property that is possessed by degrees rather than in its completion fullness of a maximum upper limit.
2: All right. And just as a a quick summation of this section, I want to read this part that you had in the book. In the Mormon view, God has the same ontological status as humans, for both are, in their individual essences, uncreated and backwardly eternal. God is not different in kind from humans, but differs in that he fully actualizes the divine-making properties, which are possessed only in potentiality by humans. All right, and with that, let move us on to the next section, which is time-indexed properties of divinity. I'll go ahead and pass this back to Corey. All
0: right, and so this concept does bring up a problem relating to the last section but also there's a solution we'll get to so a time index property is a property that once possessed is always possessed and it must be possessed thereafter by virtue of past necessity so some of the attributes that are such in the classical tradition are things like divine simplicity timelessness pure actuality immutability and having the property of being the creator of the world let's take one so if you're the creator of the world and then you, are you know, say you're Jesus, you did that, and then you came to earth, you couldn't cease being the creator of the world, that's a property that you have that humans probably don't have. And then obviously, you know, even though we're getting at a Mormon view here, this is relevant to the argument in relation to the classical view that obviously, this is timelessness specifically, if God is actually timeless, the big problem for their Christology is that well, clearly Christ exists in time, and so... If God is an essentially timeless being, then if he becomes a mortal and is Jesus, then he's no longer God because an essential property of divinity, being timeless, is no longer possessed by him. Before I go on, though, a question that I would have relating to this that I see as a problem in the Mormon view, or the one we're developing here, is in that table that's in the book that you referred to in the last section. You have the reason that Christ as a mortal has potential properties of divinity, such as you point out, like, you know, a newborn child doesn't have the full mental capacities of an adult human, and so just because they aren't the same doesn't mean that they're not the same kind of being. But in these time index properties, does seem to be a problem. If you claim that Christ was fully divine, as opposed to us as humans, which are merely learning to be divine and are changing into something divine, how can we reconcile that Christ somehow did possess some properties of divinity, not necessarily just the classical ones, and then seemed to need to go back to an infant state of these divine characteristics, we'll we'll say. Such as, just one example, let's say we're here to love, to be in perfect relationship with one another, and we don't have that yet, we're developing it. It's it's there in us, in embryo, and we can develop it. Christ had it, somehow he gave it up, and then is he supposed to develop it again? I see that as a possible problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing, in fact, is addressing a problem that I think is raised in particular for the Canonic view, and that is, the Canonic view is essentially asserting that Christ gave up the fullness of some of the divine properties, and the question would well, did he cease to have the divine properties? That usually Canonicism is expressed that he just gives up and empties himself of the divine properties. That's not the view I'm presenting. So I, you know, we need to make sure that we're understanding that. What happens with the time index property, we've got to give up the hardcore absolutist properties, or we can't make sense, in my view, certainly not of a Canadi Christology. I don't believe we can make sense of a 2 nature Christology unless we give up those properties of divinity. But let's say that we do give up those properties of divinity. Are there still properties that cause a problem for us? And As you pointed out, Jesus of Nazareth walking around the Palestinian countryside still had the property of having been the individual who created the universe which is not a property many humans have, (laughs) okay? But what we're looking at is not a different, the the question, and that's an open question, is this property so different that it's not the same kind of property that humans have? We participate in creativity. We make things all the time in the same way that Christ did. We organize things that exist into new realities. And that's what Christ did when he did the creation. And so what I'm asserting is that he had the ability, while fully divine, to influence things with much greater capacity. He organized the universe. Well, we participate in organizing the universe. Our, our decisions contribute something genuinely novel to the universe. We're co-creators of the universe. In addition, we have the power of creativity. Our power is much more limited than Christ was, but it's still the same kind of a property as the power to create, and we possess it. We possess it in and certainly not as developed. We possess it in a in a potentiality in a in comparison to Christ. So how did Christ leave behind the power? And that is the power is actually exercised by the Godhead per se, not by an individual divine person. And so when Christ leaves the divine unity, there is no it's not even logically possible that he exercised the fullness of divine power. Now he can participate in the exercise of divine power as a human being, just as we all do. By cooperating with the Godhead in its purposes, and the Godhead lending its power to him to accomplish its purposes. but It's always the Godhead's purposes that are being accomplished through the Godhead's power, and not that of an individual. It's the same for us as for Christ. And so, does this create a problem for us? If if creation were the notion of creation ex nihilo, rather than the notion of, of creating by organizing uh, chaos, then I would say that the property of creation involved is so different that they're not really the same property at all. In other words, if Christ created the universe out of nothing, then to say that we create in the way that Christ creates is just nonsense. But if Christ creates in the same way that we create, it seems to me that the same kind of property is just as fully developed. And so I think that the assertions that I'm making are consistent with the notion of properties that are held to degrees or in graded measure. And that We participate as co-creators with Christ and the Father when we unite our wills with theirs. But frankly, we participate as creators even when we don't. We create huge messes in the world, especially when we don't cooperate with God. But we're co-creators of the realities in which we live. I'm a big believer that people create their own hell if that's what they choose to do. People can create a heaven to live in or a hell to live in before they die. And so the fact is, is that we are creators. We can't avoid being creators. We create the lives that we live. We create the world about us. That's what God does. He just has a fuller extent. Now, we'll ask later, you know, if God's limited in knowledge, if he's limited in power. But what I'm asserting is, is that we have a property of power. We can carry out acts, but to a human degree, not to a fully divine degree, because we're not fully divine. Doesn't mean we have a different kind of property. We still have a property of power we have a property of knowledge. It's not a fully divine property of knowledge, but it is one that is in a potential participation in the fullness of the divinity, and that's what I think is necessary. So Christ, just like we do, had these properties in potentiality, but not in their fullness while he was a human being. He still had all of the essential properties of divinity. And so I think at this point, that the assertions we're making are consistent. I think they're consistent with the scriptural record, and I think they're logically consistent with asserting that Jesus was fully of the divine kind while he was human, but he wasn't fully divine. And those are two different assertions, very different assertions.
0: All right, fair enough. And I I think another way to deal with this is that, let's say, Christ is on a, a higher level developed than us, and he's come here to develop some properties. Just as Christ was divine before this life, so too are we divine, and I believe it's a Mormon notion that some people had developed more than others in, you know, before this life, and so that isn't really a problem just because you know some people are going to come here with previously more developed divine properties, but the fact is we're here now developing what we can from this life.
1: Yeah, I think that I I agree with that. The scriptural assertion is that there's a full range of gradation of intelligences from the most intelligent to the much lesser intelligent. That's the same way with human beings. There are a lot of human beings that are more intelligent than other human beings, but it doesn't mean that the less intelligent human beings are less human. It just means they're less intelligent and could learn more. There may be human beings who suffer from mental incapacity, that mental incapacity will be healed in the resurrection, I have no doubt. But I think the point that you're making is well taken. It's also the case that when we're talking about what kind of being we are, we are of the divine kind. That's the whole point. We're both of the divine kind and of the human kind, and there isn't a both here. It's just one. They're the same thing. They're two words for the same kind of being. It's just that to be divine means that we have a capacity that usually isn't allowed to humans. We have the capacity to fully participate in the omniscience of the Godhead. We have the capacity to fully participate in the power of the Godhead. We have the capacity to fully participate in the glory of the Godhead. And that's because we have the capacity to fully develop in love. And that's essentially what we're here to do. And even people of much lesser intelligence may have good capacity for love. We may be surprised, I think. So what I want to say about this is that the mere fact that some people have much less capacity or have made bad decisions doesn't mean that they're not human. It also doesn't mean that they're not of the divine kind which answers a lot of the questions that we had last time about, is are humans different than than God? Well, we're different than the Godhead because we exist on a different level of reality than an organized unity and a divine reality that emerges from the relationship. But we are everything that the Father is, both ontologically and in our capacities. So there is no real distinction except for the God is the most intelligent of all the intelligences and has always made the decision to love fully. Maybe it's because he's so intelligent that he's made that decision, but he's bringing us and seeking to bring us to the fullness of the joy and glory that he knows by sharing it with us and teaching us how to be everything that he is. So we're here to learn. We're here to learn how to be gods. And it may take a while. This may not be the only experience that we have that will be necessary to bring us to that possibility. And others are much more fully developed in it than than others. So there may be people who, who come to this earth already essentially fully divine, but need you know the possibility of growing by having a body so that they can experience the particularity of being an individual human being outside of the fullness of the Godhead. So there are a lot of reasons that could be pointed to about why human beings are the way that they are. There are some who, who have mental and physical limitations. I've got a fourth volume that I'm working on, and actually it's been done for four years. I just haven't published it yet, dealing with the problem of evil, where I discuss these issues at some length. But the reality is, while all of us may have very different purposes in life, there's at least one purpose in life that we all share, and that's to learn about love. Now, a newborn baby's not going to learn much about that, but I discuss that too, and why humanity and the experience of mortality would still be worthwhile for such a being.
0: All right, great. That just brings up, kind of in transition to the next section, but before we get to it, I want to ask this question, just because I think it will be relevant. So, in your view, is Christ becoming human something necessary to him, like it is to humans, because it's necessary for us to be able to, at least from what you said before, to choose to be in the divine relationship, whereas we couldn't do that somehow directly in the presence of God? So, is Jesus doing the same? Is it essential for him to relearn to be in the divine love? Yes. The way he was before?
1: It is necessary for Jesus, because there are things that he can't experience as a divine person. He can't experience what it means to be alienated, or alone, or rejected. Persons who are in the most fulfilling relationship possible can't experience those things. All right, so
0: it's not it's not just an altruistic, I mean, that might be part of it, but it's not just a God saying, oh, silly humans, I'm going to come show you all how to do it, and it's not really hard for me. It's something he actually did need to develop along with us, regardless of the fact that he was fully divine. Would you say Christ was fully divine before his humanity?
1: He was fully divine because he fully participated in the fullness of glory of the Godhead, which we haven't done. But that's just because he has expressed and chosen the capacity to fully love. It's not a different capacity than we have. It's the same capacity. He's just made a different choice, and it may be that his capacities are already more fully developed than ours.
0: That's about as far as we need to get into that. Okay, that answers that. But that brings up the next question, naturally. So we get into now, was Jesus truly human? And we talked about this in kind of the traditional view, but let's talk about it from a Mormon view now. So I'll start with this quote. It may also be objected that Jesus was not truly human. For if Jesus possessed the property of being potentially omnipotent, then it may be that he could, after all, exercise omnipotence simply by willing to do so. If Christ were potentially omnipotent, then this could be taken to mean that he could become actually omnipotent at will, for I can possess a power without exercising it. Two more things before you further comment on that. So, you also say that Mormonism does seem to have this danger of going into the docetic view, which we talked about before, where Christ wasn't actually truly human. He was just kind of God pretending to be human and that. In Sunday school, and often I hear in church people saying that, you know, when Christ was up there on the cross, at any moment he could have called down the thunderbolts and, and killed all the Romans that and and, you know, just walked away from it all. And that's a very docetic view of Christ, and I think a lot of Mormons tend to go that way, and I don't think that we can.
1: I agree with that, but I also don't think that's supportable by the scriptures fully either. The notion is this, they want to, I think, emphasize the point that Jesus willingly suffered because he could have willingly chose not to suffer at any time, unlike us. The problem is that a lot of the depth of suffering that humans experience is from hopelessness, the inability to end the suffering. In fact, studies show if we can control the pain so that we can shut it off at any time, we can withstand a lot more pain than if we can't control it. So one of the reasons they give buttons where people can self-administer drugs supposedly in hospitals, even though the buttons usually don't work, is that it gives them the psychological placebo effect that they're in control of their pain. And so if Jesus had the power to stop suffering at any time, he's not really suffering as a human being, because one of the biggest problems we have is we can't stop suffering, and we don't know when the pain is going to end. And so that's what I think they're missing. I think that to their, they're missing that to be really human means that we're not totally in control. We can't stop those who are persecuting us and killing us and causing us to be in pain at will. And I don't think the notion is, is that while Jesus was on the cross, he was omnipotent and could have just said, well, you know, I've had it. You guys are evil. I've had it. I've, I've accomplished everything I need to, and now I'm going to just wipe you all out. That's not what I think the scriptures support at all. In fact, I think they support rather his hopelessness in the face of the fact that he didn't even feel that God was present with him at that time and that he felt totally abandoned by God. That's the opposite of what I think this kind of view that a lot of Mormons want to tell us about because they want to emphasize the voluntary nature of his suffering. However, he did voluntarily suffer in this sense, and I think there's something really important here, and that is that Christ is free. We'll get into this in the next section when we talk about, is it possible to sin? He chose to undergo the suffering that he had, and he could have asked the Father, I think, to remove that bitter cup if he had so chosen. But he chose to undergo the atonement rather than skip out on it, if you will. It's important that his suffering is the full suffering of a human being and not the suffering of somebody who really is divine. It's not like the king walking around in peasant clothes. Because the difference between the peasant and the king is that the king can pull his robes off and show that he's the king at any time and call his guards and everybody else at hand to solve any problems that he has. So when the king goes among the common people, he never really is a commoner because he has this ability the commoners don't have. Now, if the king's deposed and he's thrown out there and he can't call his guards, he really is like the commoners. In fact, maybe he's a little bit worse. And so it's not enough to say that Jesus was God dressed up in a human body who really still had a fullness of divine power and a fullness of divine knowledge. Christ was truly limited in the way that we are in knowledge and power.
0: Right, and just to clarify for those listening, so it was still a choice for Christ. We're not asserting that it was inevitable for him to go through the atonement. We are saying, at least as far as I'm understanding, that let's say, especially at that moment that you mentioned when he's saying, If it be possible, remove this cup from me. You know, he probably could have tried to go into hiding. He could have run away. But he did willingly give himself up, basically, knowing potentially what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, he seemed to be aware, I think, he could have run out on it. He could have said, look, you know, the Romans are after me. I'm taking Mm -hmm. off and going to northern Israel where they can't reach me. He didn't do that. He could have run. He didn't do that. He stayed and faced what he knew. And, And he seems to have had a strong sense by that time in his life as to what his mission was. I'm not saying that he didn't have a strong notion as to what his divine mission was. He just didn't have the power to stop the suffering once he had chosen to go through with it. He fully experienced that, and he experienced the kind of, and maybe experienced alienation in a more full degree than I think that most human beings do, and here's why. I think it's likely, given the scriptural record, that Jesus, during his entire life, had an intense sense of the presence of his Father. He was never alone, and he was fully aware of God's presence in his life. But when he's on the cross, he seems to be saying, I don't feel that anymore. You're gone, and I can't find you. And I feel like I'm completely alone, and this is when I need you the most. I'm on a Roman cross suffering. Where are you? And so the depth of his suffering, if if you've always had a close friend who was there with you to see you through, and all of a sudden that close friend is not there when you need him most, I think the suffering's greater than that than it otherwise would be and so i think his the suffering he had was very poignant
0: all right great and again this is kind of more transitioning to the next section i guess we already talked about being merely human versus being fully human well one thing actually to clarify there or just to see if i'm understanding you correctly so When we're talking about human and merely and fully, we're not talking about like biologically necessarily limited by our bodies. When we're talking about being human and humanity, we're more talking about actually our divinity being, uh, you can't say merely divine, but like more limited, divine embodied in the limited sense we are versus being fully, truly what we are, which is divine. Is that what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, what I mean is that the fullness of humanity, a fully mature humanity, is fullness of divinity. They happen to be the same thing. If we mature our humanity, we mature our divinity. I'm going to throw just a wrench in the discussion, though. There is a sense in which we are two different natures. We have a mortal nature which is subject to death and pain and suffering. We have an immortal nature, which existed before this life, will exist after this life, that isn't subject to pain and death. And so we seem to have a mortal nature and an immortal nature built into us. In this sense, there may, in some sense, be two natures in every human person. And that's a part of the mind-body problem that's much larger than I want to get into right now. But I want to keep straight that Jesus also had an immortal nature the entire time. It's in light of this immortal nature that when we're a human being, we're not really aware of our immortal nature in its fullness. The, the threat of death ending the projects of our mortal lives is something that we deal with, and we deal with the uncertainty of it all, and we deal with what it is to lose people in our lives and, and to experience loss. And so even though we have this immortal nature, death and immortality can be overwhelming. And we may lose sight completely of our immortal nature. Our bodily nature may completely overwhelm any sense of our immortal nature.
0: Well, I mean, there's, I don't know, it's like a colloquialism in Mormonism. We say we are divine beings having a human experience. So it's not necessarily maybe a nature, but a type of experience, could we say?
1: Yeah, but I tend to think that an immortal nature is something quite distinct and different from a mortal nature. I mean... The mortal nature is defined in its totality by the human body and its health, whereas our immortal nature isn't defined at all by that. And so there is kind of a duality in us. To be human is to have these two natures. That's what I want to point out. Every human being has an immortal and immortal nature built into us. It's the same with Jesus Christ. Again, to be human is to have these two natures present in us. And I suppose we could say that one of the purposes of Christianity is that the virtues of the immortal nature prevail over the weaknesses of the human nature. But in Mormonism, that's not really quite accurate. What we want to say in Mormonism, I believe, is that our human nature becomes perfected and adds to and perfects also our immortal nature because our immortal nature is incomplete without our mortal nature properly perfected. And so it is, and Mormon scriptures actually say that it is the union of the spirit and the body together which constitute the soul, and it is the soul that is perfected. The soul is not just the immortal part of it; it's the whole part of us. And so to be a human being is to be a soul in this nature, and that's what a human soul is. So I've thrown a wrench in this because I just want to make sure that we keep in mind, you know, an accurate assessment of what it is to be a human being. And to be a human being is to have these two distinct natures, an immortal nature and a mortal nature.
0: The next section is called the problems of identity. and. It- basically asked the question, how can Jesus be the same being with God the Son when they do not have any properties in common? So I guess we do need to backtrack a bit. So what's the difference between Son of God with a small s and Son of God in like a Trinitarian sense?
1: When Son is capitalized in Son of God, what I mean is the second person of the Trinity. So I'm talking in the tradition about the person who just is the one God, if you will, or, or one of the divine persons in the one God or in the Trinity. And we'll get into the Trinity in the third volume. But in essence, that's distinct from being a son of God. We're all sons of God. We're all sons and daughters of God. That doesn't mean that we're the son of God in the Godhead, okay? So that's the distinction. The distinction that we're asking here also is there are two ways of doing this. The the way I've asked the question, the backdrop, is the classical view. The son of God doesn't have any properties in common with Jesus. And I go through an argument in the book showing that if the son of God has the properties of a classical deity. He can't really have any properties in common with Jesus at all. But in Mormonism, there are properties in common. The immortal part of Jesus is the same as the immortal part that gives life to Jesus's body. The virtues of the pre-earth Jesus are those of the earthly Jesus. And so we get into a very large problem of what does it mean that I'm the same person? I'm the same person I was when I was six years old. But I don't have a lot in common with the person I was when I was six years old. However, I've built upon the experiences that I had as that six-year-old. I still have the same genetic identity. I still have the same body having been replaced. Every cell in my body has been replaced by now from the person I was when I was six years old, but they're still replaced in the same genetic way. And I have the memories of that six-year-old. So I have these properties of identity. Does the mortal Jesus have something that would identify him with the pre-mortal Jesus who was fully divine and the answer is yes he has the same soul if you will he has the same identity as an immortal spirit and his personality and his goodness are expressed in his mortal life this as they were in his pre-mortal life so he has in essence the same personality which continues and so that which is essentially us continues with us and it continues with us after death as well And so, on the Mormon view, there are adequate criteria for individual identity between Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus as a human being. Whereas in the tradition, I argue and, you know, I've developed the argument, they really don't have anything in common. There's no continuity between the Son of God and Jesus. There are no pre mortal memories that Jesus has of being a fully timeless being, for instance, because a timeless being can't have any memories, you know, that kind of thing. So, what is it that would make Jesus of Nazareth the same person as the second person in the Trinity, and argue there isn't anything. There's no continuity at all. There's no way to say that the Son of God just is Jesus, or somehow related to Jesus in an identity relationship. That kind of assertion can't be made in the tradition. So I think this is one of the great merits of the Mormon view, is that it makes sense of saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, a very basic Christian assertion, and I don't believe that it can be made sense of in the tradition. And so, hats off to Joseph Smith for either come, being so bright that he could just dissolve this kind of a problem, given his views, or from having the revelations that give us enough light and knowledge that we could figure out, look, this solves this problem.
0: All right, great. Just one other question before we jump over to the next section. I was going to ask earlier, but I forgot. So, in your view, what does it mean that Jesus was the only begotten Son? What does begotten mean? Meaning through Mary or something in pre-existent life, or does it have some other meaning to you?
1: The only begotten son has different meanings in different contexts, as you point out in the infancy narratives. To say that he's the only begotten son means that he is the offspring of God the Father, and he's the only offspring of God the Father who is human. In the context of the scriptures where it's used to say that he's the only begotten son, it means that he's a unique son, and he's unique in the sense that he is the only son of God who was fully divine before becoming human. I mean, he is the creator of the universe. And to say that in Mormon parlance, we often use it in a sense that I think is illegitimate, that Jesus is the only, is you know, it means the same thing as being the first begotten son. And oftentimes it comes into a larger theology where there are heavenly mothers giving birth to spirits and Jesus is somehow the only begotten of the Father. I don't think that any Mormon would want to make that assertion in that context, because we're all begotten of God in the same sense. So when the scriptures are asserting that Jesus is the only begotten Son, in one context, it means that he's the only mortal offspring of the Father. In another context, it means that he is uniquely the Father's Son in the sense that he was the only one who was fully divine before life. It doesn't mean what most Mormons think it means in the sense that there was a divine spiritual birth of Jesus and he was the uniquely only begotten Son of the Father as a spirit. It's not even true in their theology, as a matter of fact.
0: All right, great. Let's jump over to the next section that Jacob's going to take and just introduce it briefly. We say that Jesus led a sinless life, but the next section is titled, Was it possible for Jesus to sin?
2: Right, and the main issue here is it seems that if a person is truly tempted, they can only be truly tempted if it's possible for him or her to actually give in to the temptation of sin. And if Jesus possessed the property of perfect goodness in the same respect that God is perfectly good, then it seems inconsistent that he could truly sin, for it seems incompatible with his divine nature to permit sin in any sense. How do we reconcile this?
1: Well, what we're looking at first is, in Mormon thought, we don't want to say that it is definitive of God, that God is perfectly good. In other words, God isn't good of his necessity. It's possible for God to do something wrong logically. It's also possible for God to do something wrong realistically. I mean, if God has libertarian free will, and if he freely chose to do something wrong, then he would do something wrong. He's free to do so. In the tradition and in philosophy, we have this notion of what we call essential predication. When we're speaking of God, when I assert that God is perfectly good, I'm making an assertion that it is definitive of what it is to be God in the same sense that it is definitive of the mayor of Boston to be an elected official. Necessarily, the mayor of Boston is an elected official because that's what mayor of Boston means. In the same sense, God is perfectly good is definitive of what God is because you wouldn't be God if you weren't perfectly good. I want to just simply reject the doctrine of essential predication with respect to God. And I want to say that the proper response is to deny the doctrine of essential predication with respect to the divine individuals. I also assert that Jesus was free to sin. He was free in a libertarian sense as a person and could have genuinely sinned if he had so chosen. The question is, is that too precarious? If if God could sin, what makes you think he won't? Well, the answer is we have to trust God to be good, just the same way we trust other people to be good. But God has revealed himself in such a way that we can rely on him. And in the second volume, and we'll get into this further, I make a further argument, that is the trust is really truly only possible if it is possible for God to do what is less than truly good. We can't trust him to be good if he's good by definition, Mm. because we don't put our trust in him. So the bottom line is, as it was possible for Jesus to sin, he simply freely chose not to. In so doing, he remained the Savior. If he had chosen to sin, it would have been otherwise, but that's not what happened. Can I ask
0: a quick question? Can you define what your definition of sin is, and did Jesus really not sin in doing anything bad, or did he not alienate himself from God or something like that?
1: Well, I, meant, I mean sin writ largely. Whatever your ethical theory is of right and wrong, Jesus didn't do wrong. Whatever your ethical theory is of, of what makes something a sin, he didn't engage in that.
0: Is that realistic, though, as if Jesus was truly human as a teenager, w- wouldn't he have to have sinned at some point? I mean, not sin, but like, you know, maybe he had one random bad thought. Isn't that a sin?
1: In some views, one random bad thought would be a sin. I would suggest that a bad thought isn't necessarily a sin. The question is what you do with it once it occurs to you, because thoughts just occurred to us for which we're not responsible, and we're responsible for what we do with them when they occur to us. In any event, whatever it means to be without sin, that's what Jesus was. Now, I develop in the second volume a particular theory of ethics and agape ethics. Agape is the Greek term for love. So I base my view of ethics on the view that sin is whatever destroys human relationships or alienates us from others in human relationships. That's what a sin is. What is good and what is defined as the right thing to do is anything that heals relationships or that nurtures relationships. And so I have a very relational view of what is right and wrong. And what I assert is that Christ never acted in less than a loving way. That's a different notion. Did Jesus have Let's just get blunt. Did Jesus have sexual desires? The answer is yes. He was a human being and he was a male. He had sexual desires. (laughs) What did he do with his sexual desires? Well, he handled them in a fully mature male way. Did he learn how to handle them? Yes, he probably grew in his understanding of what it was to deal with his human body. And because he'd never had sexual desires before having a human body, that's part of what it is to be a human being. So the mere fact that we have sexual desires isn't a bad thing. It's what we do with the sexual desires when they occur to us. Did he have a desire to hurt his his brothers and sisters? Did he argue with them? I don't know. But uh, I can tell you this. The scriptures assert that he was without sin. And so if he did something that was less than fully loving, it wasn't so much less than fully loving that you would say that it was unloving. So that's how I would define it. Jesus didn't do anything that was unloving in his life. Did he always do the most loving thing possible? I think he learned how to love like the rest of us do. So I think as a young kid, when he was dealing with his brothers and sisters, you know, did he stick his tongue out at his sister? I don't know. But it's certainly possible. And if he did, she probably didn't like it.
2: Okay. And I think we also want to include, because you said a sin would be anything that damages human relationships. And maybe this goes to the relationship with self, but this is also something that damages our relationship between us and God.
1: Right. So the relationships include relationships with God, relationships with others, and our relationship with ourselves. Ultimately, the idea would be to get rid of any relationship with ourselves so that we just are ourselves and we don't have a relationship with ourselves because when we have a relationship with ourselves, we become divided and. We return on ourselves reflexively, but that's something to get into in a different book, dealing with self-deception. And I get into that in the second volume.
2: In that second, you also dip into that in Fire on the Horizon. But moving on with, was it possible for Jesus to sin? So like you said, we reject the notion of essential predication. And you also use a metaphor that you've used before in that, yes, Jesus could have sinned, but we have so much trust in him. It's like trusting Mother Teresa not to go and join a brothel it would have been so out there that is it logically possible yes but is it logically probable
1: no <laughs> Well, it's not just a matter of being logically probable it's so inconsistent with her established character that nobody could wake awake at night worrying about it it just isn't a pragmatic possibility it's not a live option given her established character that was just not something that was ever going to occur it's the same with the divine persons Their commitment to be fully loving has been demonstrated over aeons of demonstrating making the choice to fully love us. And we also trust them to be fully rational because they look at things in such a way where they're committed to what brings us happiness and joy because that's the most rational thing to do. And if they're committed to bringing us happiness and joy, by the way, bringing us happiness and joy brings them happiness and joy. And so it's also in their best interest. It's irrational on many, many levels to seek less than our full development as divine beings. So that's what they're committed to. And it's loving and fulfilling, and it's the very purpose of existence. And especially within a Christian theology, love is the purpose of what it is to exist. There's no other way to put it. Love is all in all.
2: Excellent. With that, we can go to the last section. Corey will take that and
0: bring us home. I'll also add in if I have anything else to say, but uh, take it away, Corey. One more question here, and then we'll get to the conclusion. So the next question is, could Yahweh be God if he could learn from suffering? And this is a specifically Mormon conundrum. There's a quote here. It says, the canonic Christology assumed in Mormon scripture poses a problem not faced by conventional thought because it asserts that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who became flesh as Jesus of Nazareth, did not, know, did not know all that it was possible to know. For example, Yahweh did not know what it was to suffer prior to his mortality, and yet he was recognized as very God. So basically the question is, was he fully God if he could still learn new things?
1: Yeah, and, and the answer is, is that we're talking about knowledge as a developmental property that doesn't have an absolute upper limit, so God will always be learning. It is part of the divine nature to learn from new experiences and to have new experiences. So, in terms of experiential knowledge, God will always be gaining new experiential knowledge on many, many different levels. And so, the notion that God could learn something from experience certainly can't count against his divinity, because if it did, it would mean that Yahweh couldn't possess, God can't possess the kind of particularized knowledge that arises only from experience. So, experiential knowledge is something that can be gained in only one way, and that's to have experiences. And not even God can have experiential knowledge without having the experiences that are necessary in order to possess that knowledge. So what follows is that it doesn't count against Yahweh's divinity from the mere fact that he is learning from new experiences. So if it counted against his divinity, divinity wouldn't be possible.
0: Well, one question that comes up in another scripture, I believe this is in the Book of Mormon. One of the claims is that Jesus became embodied and experienced this life so that he could learn to succor his people or to relate to them more. Yeah, that's an Alma 7. All right, so if that's the case, then all the people that lived before Christ, was it unfair to them because they weren't dealing with a God that could understand them?
1: I think what we've got to understand about the significance of the life of Jesus of Nazareth is that it opened new doors of possibility for growth to human beings as well, There were doors that were closed to human beings without Jesus having accomplished what he did. So there are ways that he learned to give solace. For instance, before Yahweh became human, no human being could point to the suffering of Jesus and say, look, the Son of God underwent all of this. Are you greater than he is? I think this gives great solace to realize that the greatest among us dipped below everything. He experienced the fullness of what it is to be a human being. I think that this gives great solace because he participated with us in the fullness of our human suffering. That's not something that could have been done by somebody before the time of Jesus. It's not something they can say, look, Yahweh became human. That could only be done after he became human. So obviously there were types of solace that were possible only after Jesus became human, and nobody could argue the contrary if that's the type of solace we're talking about.
0: Okay, and to build on that, You also come up with kind of a different definition of omniscience in a way that is analogous to your omnipotence definition. It says a person R is all-knowing at a time T if and only if R knows all things that it is possible for a living person having R's attributes to know at T. So if this definition is acceptable, then Yahweh did not need to possess experiential knowledge if such knowledge is contrary to the attributes that he possesses.
1: Right. And so given this definition, so what I'm, I'm doing is doing a time index definition of omniscience to suggest that God is always self-surpassing. That is, he may have a fullness of knowledge, but in the next moment, his knowledge will be even more complete and fuller because reality has developed beyond that. There's something there new to know. But there's also something that was a new dimension of experience within Yahweh's experience. And by Yahweh, I mean the person to whom the divine name Yahweh has been given. That's the Son of God, Jesus. So that's how I'm using that now. We'll get into that in the third volume, but I want to be clear even as we discuss it now. So there were kinds of knowledge that Jesus, as a fully divine being, could not possess and that the Holy Ghost doesn't possess because he's never become mortal. And that is, that it was impossible for him to experience alienation, abandonment, isolation, rejection, and the kind of things that are experienced by humans. And so It's impossible for him as the son of God in the fullness of the unity of the Godhead to experience those kinds of things because by definition, he's in the most fulfilling relationship possible. And a being in that relationship isn't alienated, isn't feeling abandoned, isn't isolated in any sense. Only by becoming human could these dimensions of experience be opened to his experiential knowledge. And so given this definition of omniscience it becomes possible for God to grow through experiential knowledge and to learn to succor his people by the things that he learns and to learn compassion because of his human experience.
0: That's a good quote here. It says Jesus is deserving of praise, respect and even worship, but not because he stayed aloof from human limitations, not because he succeeded in refraining from sinning, because it was logically impossible to sin and not because he is unaffected by our pains and sufferings. Rather, he is deserving precisely because he could have sinned, but freely chose not to. He could have avoided pain, but freely chose to experience it firsthand so that he could be our Savior. And so he's deserving of praise because of those things.
1: I think a being that can grow, but that truly experiences humanity when God didn't have to, and could have God been perfectly blissful without going through this, No, I don't think so. I think that God would have suffered in our sufferings. And I think that God gains great joy through the new doors and possibilities that are opened because of the life of Jesus. The doors to the possibility of full exaltation were opened. New vistas of potential for human beings were opened because of the life of Jesus. But the reality is, is he didn't have to go through it. He didn't have to suffer the way that he did. And he chose to become mortal. He chose specifically at at a time in his life to not shrink from drinking the bitter cup that he knew was before him. And so I think the great praise are due to Jesus for everything that is accomplished to us. The very purpose of our lives is made possible to realize, because Jesus loved us so much that he made these choices freely, facing the kind of pain that he knew was coming his way. And in the midst of it, I'm just in awe of the being who's on the cross, In the very moment that he feels the greatest alienation possible for a human being, for a person who's had the intimate awareness, the intimate knowledge of the presence of his father every moment of his life to feel totally abandoned in that moment by his father in the excruciating pain of the body shutting down, the organs of the body shutting down in every nerve Screaming in pain because his hands and his feet have been crushed and he can't breathe, and fluid is filling his lungs. And in that moment of total abandonment, he asked the Father to forgive those who put him on the cross. Anybody who isn't moved by this deity on the cross, in this moment of divine forgiveness, it always moves me. i'm I'm just i'm I'm so grateful. i I, I just want to express that I'm just so grateful for that.
0: Right, and then just read this last paragraph in the book. This is just summing up the section that we can kind of talk about the book in general as a kind of a conclusion before we move on here. So, the son divested himself of the divine glory which arises from his imminent relationship to the world. But this relationship to the world is not essential for possessing the divine properties and potentiality. By distinguishing the divine nature or essence from the external relations of God to the world, it is possible to say that Jesus retained divine properties while divesting himself of the fullness of the divine glory. It is thus possible in the monified canonic view expressed in Mormon scripture to affirm that God the Son became fully human, but retained his essential divinity. And that's how you end this section. So, you know, just it puts forth the Mormon view of Christ and just says how he could retain that. Is there anything else to close out this section?
1: Yeah, I think it's a tribute to Joseph Smith that he provided to us the revelations necessary and a system necessary, and it's not really systematized in this way, but to provide us the ability to resolve and dissolve the problem of Christology. I mean, the way this comes together is both inspiring and brilliant genius, but it's not my genius and it's not my brilliance. It's Joseph Smith's genius through the revelations that he received. I think that anybody who isn't in awe of what Joseph Smith accomplished, any person who truly appreciates the difficulty of the Christological problem and then sees how incredibly it gets dissolved on the view that Joseph Smith provided to us, or at least the kernel of the view that he provided so that it can be fleshed out, I don't think is really grasping the genius of Joseph Smith. And it's not merely that Joseph Smith, you know, he had to have the capacity for putting all of this together because he was open to the inspiration. But much of it is still, you know, and it's over the entire lifetime of revelations of Joseph Smith in light of his Nauvoo pronouncements that this is all put together this way. And I don't want to say that Joseph Smith put it together the way I have, but I think it opens the way for a very fulfilling, satisfying, and coherent Christology.
0: All right, great. And then, yeah, that... said this is the last chapter in the book if you would just kind of go back and remind us why this book was something you felt necessary to write in the first place and what it is that you see accomplished through this very systematic way in several of the chapters of coming to understand the Mormon concept of God
1: I wrote the book basically is the ability to clarify my own views I knew that there couldn't be a discussion of Christology without first getting some clarity on the nature of the divine properties that we were dealing with, to understand exactly how Mormonism mutated, if you will, the Christian tradition. And as I laid it out and came to the Christology, which was my ultimate goal, I was actually writing the book at a certain point for an upper division philosophy course to see what I had come to appreciate and see in Joseph Smith's thought. But most of this was simply an exercise on my own part because there is magic that occurs when a person sits down and actually writes out and formulates what it is they believe. And, you know, given my training in logic and in philosophy... It seemed like a very natural thing to sit down and put this together and to kind of work through the logical problems that naturally arise with these different views and to work them through and to see if there is a way to work them through. So it started out as kind of a personal exercise on my part to clarify my views and then morphed into a book for philosophy students. You know, because I was just at a certain point just kind of inspired and in awe of what I believed joseph smith had revealed about all of this and how remarkably it dissolved the classical problems because mormonism really does dissolve most of the classical problems but also wanted to be fair when it gave rise to additional special problems of its own you know that's why i address time index properties of divinity and you know whether or not god could be god if he's really subject to learning from his experiences and so forth so you know i'm dealing both with the classical problems, looking at whether they can be resolved, and I concluded that the classical view of God just gives rise to insuperable, intractable problems if they are conjoined with the commitments of Christianity. They just don't make a lot of sense to me. And I did the best that I could dealing with what I considered to be the best minds in history and the top philosophers at that time dealing with these issues to work with what they were doing. And I have a great respect for them. I think they're very intelligent people. But I just, you know, the more I dealt with it, the more I was convinced that they couldn't pull it off within the tradition. So whether everybody agrees with everything I've said was not the idea it was to have an informative and good faith discussion as I saw it. And so it's very much that kind of a thing. And then after a while, I had used this as a text in a, in a class that I was teaching at BYU. I actually used it in two classes, used the classes kind of to refine it. And then Greg Colford found out that I was using a syllabus that essentially consisted of an early version of this book. And he wanted to publish, so I published it. So I went through it again, um, polished it up, and you know that's what turned out to be the first volume.
0: All right, great.
1: Well, let me ask the question, what did you gain? reading the book what were your perspectives assuming you gained anything at all <laughs>
2: <laughs> no I, I i gained a new understanding for a coherent christology i mean i grew up in a you know a mainstream mormon city and so you know a lot of these things that we've analyzed and seen there are actual issues with are things that i had grown up having taught to me and i had never really thought that to question them and to be like well you know that that doesn't make sense but then when it's put in a certain light, it's like, well, yeah, there probably needs to be a better way to understand this. And then in light of the scriptures and in light of all the past thinkers, seeing that these are things that have been issues for a while. People have really thought about this. And it really gets to the heart of who we are, why we're here. And this is why there's so many great thinkers that try and tackle these questions. And to see it put in a systematic way that, for the most part, makes sense to me it just rings of good fruit. And I feel like I, I've come to know my nature in relation to God and in relation to my savior in a more informed way, in, in almost a new light, and I'm very appreciative of that.
1: Thanks. So how about you, Corey? For me, um, I don't know,
0: like I've dabbled a bit in philosophy before going through this, and I was vaguely aware of some of the issues, I thought I had understood a lot of things such as foreknowledge and free will, and I was actually already, you know, kind of leaning towards an open theism view, which says that the future is open already, but I wasn't aware of half of the problems that were brought up in this book and aptly dealt with, and so, yeah, it just kind of reaffirmed for me even more that, if anything, I think one of the main things people can take away from this, especially from the Mormon view and even without that, is that you can have a different view, but for... God to be in time and to have the future be only probable not only makes sense based on our real life experience, but since we went through very in-depth all the, maybe not every possible angle, but most of the philosophical issues pretty in-depth that, you know, I'm even more convinced now. And I know this says this in a lot of like the praise for the book on, you know, that people wrote when it came out but I'm also you know just very impressed that all you take very complex issues and pretty much hundreds of years of philosophical schools of thought and are able to apply them to this discovering the Mormon God but just going through philosophy in general I think anyone that reads this book or listens to these discussions will not just learn about Mormonism or your unique take on it. They'll also learn a whole lot about actual philosophy and hopefully be very interested in it and just see that you know it's a lot more interesting than whatever your basic ethics class was that you took in college or whatever, you
1: know? Yeah, I appreciate that and it's been very gratifying for me to deal especially with you two because I grew up with you when your brains weren't developed and it's been a real pleasure to see you take on and tackle these kind of things that i spent so much time on and care so much about and to see you you know there's this moment that every teacher waits for where there's this moment when the light goes on for the student they become excited and they become passionate about the subject and they're excited to learn about it and to see that kind of thing you know to see the light go on and where you're just excited about the issues and and it's no longer just a course of study it's now wow this is this is so cool or or this is just something that i'm passionate about i want to know about it i want to be involved with it so to have my sons involved in that kind of an endeavor and frankly i'm just glad that your brain's actually matured so there <laughs> <laughs> sure was questionable there for a while well, uh, there was some question as to whether you could actually survive this long for quite a while but i'm just grateful for it and i'm grateful that you've taken the time to go through this and to spend the time with me to talk about it so thanks
0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.